1: We have way too much to talk about on Political Rewind today, but we have the panel that will get through as much of it as we possibly can. I'm Bill Nigat and very glad to have you with us for another edition of our show. Um, As all of you know by now, there was more tragic news overnight about a mass shooting, this time in Boulder, Colorado. Ten people, including a police officer, gunned down in a giant supermarket out there um we don't know very much about the shooting at this point there's going to be a news conference at 10:30 eastern time by colorado law enforcement officials and we expect to learn more the one thing we do know is that the perpetrator used an assault weapon uh to launch his attack and obviously that will be a subject of a lot of talk in the days ahead and of course The shooting in Colorado comes on the heels of the awful, awful deaths of eight people at uh, three spas, massage parlors in uh, North Georgia just days ago. Um, What's interesting about all of this is that despite these ongoing shootings, despite repeated efforts by many uh, lawmakers, uh, primarily more progressive lawmakers to find gun safety measures gun control measures that might reduce gun violence uh, we just don't seem to be able to make any progress on that in fact at some point in the show today we're going to talk a little bit about House Bill 218 which in fact um, expands gun rights it's already passed the House it's now sitting in the Senate we're going to see what happens to it there uh, meanwhile in uh, better news Governor Kemp's expected to announce this afternoon that he is going to open vaccine eligibility to all adult Georgians uh, sometime in early April. Uh, Previously, he'd said he'd like to do it the first week of April. We'll see if, in fact, that works the way uh, he had said it would. But that's an exciting development for people who are really eager to be vaccinated. Um, We're going to start by talking about the vaccine. So let me bring in our uh, panel to begin the conversation. Tamar Hallerman is with me on Tuesday. She always is. She, of course, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey, Tamar, how are you?
2: Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you here. Uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur, is back with us, and we're glad to have you here, of course, Mary Margaret. How are you holding up? You're down to less than, what, five days or fewer in the legislative session?
0: Uh, which means that most everybody in the House and Senate's mad about something. So it'll be a tough few days.
1: Yeah, you're a, but you're such a veteran, not only of the state Senate but of the state House. I mean, how how many years have you been? What what sign e die will you be reaching next Wednesday?
0: Uh, I try not to think about that a lot, but it's in the the high 20s, and we're in a predictable pattern where the House and Senate are kind of shut down, and I'm not going to pass your bill until you pass mine, and that's going to be uh, breaking sometime soon.
1: Okay, well, we'll talk about some of the bills that have gotten a lot of attention, election bills particularly, uh, in the uh, hour ahead. Uh, uh, Ryan Graham is with us again. He's chairman of the Georgia Libertarian Party. We're glad to finally have you back with us. It's been a while, Ryan. How are you holding up?
3: Yeah, I'm glad to be back. I'm I'm holding up okay. Um, Thanks for having me.
1: Sure. And. Dr. Andra Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University, is with us. Hi, Andra.
4: Good morning. How are you?
1: We're great. Thank you for being here as well. All right, let's get right to the news. Um, We expect the governor to have a 415 news conference this afternoon. Tomorrow we'll, of course, have it uh, at GPB. Uh, radio and I imagine online or certainly all things considered will cover it when it happens. But um, uh, uh, Tamar, it's starting to appear as if the difference between the number of uh, shots that are being uh, sent to the state and the number they've administered is closing pretty dramatically. For a long time, they weren't getting shots in arms. We're now getting... Some 235,000 doses of Pfizer and Moderna every week uh, to give out. And um, as you know, Tamar, because we talked about it before the show, um, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, starting today, will begin to distrib- give out 6,000 shots a day. It's a partnership with the federal government. FEMA's involved in this. Um, and so it appears that finally people who are, why, want the vaccine We'll have a better chance of getting it, although it's still harder to get in metro Atlanta than it is in south Georgia.
2: Sure. It seems like the logistics are finally starting to catch up. Supply is reaching demand a little bit better. And you see this, this state starting to shift resources a little bit more, especially toward metro Atlanta, where there has been a ton of demand and not very much supply. We saw in Albany um, the state-sponsored um site closing down they ended up shift or shifting some doses to the local hospital there and then ended up taking a lot of extra to, to metro Atlanta and so I think it's going to be a lot easier especially if you're somebody under the age of 55 uh in Atlanta to, to get an appointment or hopefully anyway you hear a lot of stories now about people calling around to all the pharmacies in town trying to find leftover doses and, and scrambling to to get there so hopefully it'll be a, a little uh, or a little less drama as as folks try to get this. And we'll see what the governor's timeline is. You know, he was initially saying the first week of April when he hoped everybody, every adult could be, uh, would be able to get one. And I, I wonder if he'll be able to stick to that. But it's it's a promising sign.
1: Um, you know, one of the mysteries, and I'm not suggesting anybody on this panel or I have an answer to this. Um, we were expecting uh, thousands of doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as were Uh, states across the country. And there's a mystery nationally about the fact that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, we have not had any doses uh, Tamar delivered in Georgia at all. And that's disappointing, since it's a one-shot-and-done vaccine.
2: Exactly. And especially that that shot is seen as, as a really promising, especially for rural areas. You know, you only need one dose. You don't need to come back. Um, apparently, the storage is a lot easier. You don't need these super fancy, expensive freezer systems. And so it should be a lot easier to get out, get to people who live in more remote parts of the state. So I wonder what's going on. Apparently, Florida has also um, their their shipment of Johnson and Johnson hasn't come in lately, if I remember correctly. So who knows? But Hopefully they'll uh, locate that soon as well.
1: You know, um, Mary Margaret, um, Governor Kemp has been criticized uh, heavily by people, you know, Georgia for a period of time, and I'm not sure that period has ended yet, has been last in the country in terms of actually putting shots in arms. Uh, So there's been a lot of criticism of whether uh, he, Kathleen Toomey, other public health uh, officials have really been prepared to begin the process. Um, but if it was a faltering start, it does now, Mary Margaret, appear that people are going to be able to get vaccinated. I should mention one other thing to our listeners down in Savannah who may already know this. You can now go to a state site in Savannah without an appointment and uh, get a vaccine. So things are getting better, Mary Margaret.
0: They're getting better. The appearance of FEMA as a, as a real assistance on a federal uh, assist is a, is a big lift. I've talked to a number of friends who volunteered um, at the Mercedes Center, and they've talked about um, the hospitality, the greeting of people, but they've also talked about a whole lot of logistics that just haven't worked as well. Um, Too many rules up front, too many do you have permission today, too many things checked in an inconsistent way. I'm very encouraged that FEMA's now charging that our supply is coming more rapidly. I see an opportunity now for us all to work towards full vaccination, uh, to get as many people as possible vaccinated. I think it is going to open up, and I'm feeling much more optimistic about how we're going to approach it.
1: Andra, another thing we're going to have to watch for, excuse me, is um, whether or not uh, African Americans, Hispanics, are going to have this equal opportunity to be vaccinated. It's interesting that the polling that's been done in the last few weeks, for a while, there was this concern that African Americans particularly were uh, vaccine hesitant, given the history of ex- medical experimentation that's too horrifying to even go into right now. But, um, but that's changed. And the polling now shows that there's no dis- difference at all between whether... Um, uh, African Americans want the vaccine and any other uh, group of people, but we still have to deliver the vaccine to those communities, Audra.
4: Yeah, so I mean, I think that the larger issue there was people not wanting to be the first in line. And now that the vaccine has been available for a couple of months, there are people who are still hesitant, um, but they positive outcomes, and they're not necessarily, you know, uh, going to turn it down once it's their place in line. Um, what I have heard, people who know much more about this than I do talk about now with respect to making sure that we're doing vaccine equity, is to make sure that people actually have access and can actually accept the vaccine. Um, and so making sure that there are vaccine sites that are easily accessible um, in communities where people might not have, you know, access to private transportation, things that are on bus lines. Making sure that suburbanites and other privileged people aren't uh, running to poor communities to get vaccine access because, you know, it's convenient for them and they can navigate the system better. Those are the, the bigger issues. And then we now have this partisan issue that we're well aware of where Republican men don't want to take the vaccine. Um, because I don't think, you know, people are making personal decisions, but they don't realize that their personal decisions have consequences for the wider community. You could be a vector for bringing it into communities where people haven't had a chance to get uh, vaccinated yet. And um, also, the more people refuse to take the vaccine, that means the slower it is that we get to herd immunity, which means we'll all be like, you know, having to have these discussions about lockdowns and masks for a longer period of time.
1: Yeah, you know, Ryan, uh, the same polling that talks about the fact that African-Americans are now as willing as any other group to get vaccinated shows in terms of the partisan split. As many as a third of Republicans uh, don't want and perhaps more are simply not interested in the vaccine. What's the libertarian position on vaccination, Ryan? I frankly do not know.
3: Uh, well, there's a good mix. We don't really trust the government and the vaccine has been uh, produced by largely by government funds through um, public funding. Um, and so there are a lot of people who are looking at it side eyed. Uh, I myself am waiting on more data to come out. Also, I'm young and healthy, so I I can do that and I can stay at home for a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, we as a longtime listener uh, to the show, you know, I hear about the politi- politi- ah, politicization of, of issues <laughs> being kind of a negative thing. Um, and putting the governor in the, uh, in the pilot seat, so to speak, on distribution is kind of a surefire way to make sure that that happens. And what we've seen is in, you know, a, a bad distribution of this particular form of health care. We've seen a surplus going out to um, outside of Atlanta, and we have a shortage here in Atlanta. Um, if we allowed free markets to work the way that they do, we wouldn't be seeing as many of those problems. Not that they're perfect by any means but they'd be better than you know the governor making choices on a map
1: so mary margaret i i don't want to go too far off on a tangent about this I, at the same time i do think i want to give you a chance to respond to what ryan is saying i mean after all hasn't the pandemic shown us that in fact um public health agencies uh at the state level certainly in georgia but in other states as well need in fact to be far better supported and beefed up so they can, in fact, deal with a pandemic like this. I'm not quite sure how the private sector would have taken it. Better, Mary Margaret, and then Andra weigh in on this.
0: The history of public health is a fascinating history in our country that has resulted in a, a weakened uh, delivery in a, dis- in a very inconsistent way. Uh, the local authorities and public health uh, offices, the local governances, the decisions about whether to offer maternal health care, even... They're still empowered not to offer maternal health care in the 159 counties that have public health offices. We, Our obligation is to learn from this experience, this tragic experience that resulted in almost 16,000 deaths of Georgians. What have we learned about delivery of public health in rural, in urban pockets, and across the largest state east of the Mississippi that has consistently underfunded public health options and still is among the dozen states that is not maximizing our opportunity for Medicaid funding. There's so many lessons that we need to pay attention to and strengthening our public health system is uh, inquiry number one in my mind. We have uh, a unique opportunity right now with the Federal Rescue Act money and the question I'm asking daily is, where are the good ideas, who's in charge of producing a plan for public health using effectively, effectively the money that's coming to Georgia for public health? You know, I think the other issue here is
4: knowing the distinctions between public and private goods, and I know you do, Brian. so I'm not trying to condescend in any way, and also thinking about scale given the crisis that's happening um, and so, you know, this isn't just a disease that some people would get that they need to manage on themselves. This was something that affected everybody because nobody had immunity for it. And in order to make sure that we got towards herd immunity, I just don't see a way for government to not be involved in this. Um, I don't think that the market by itself, even with with sort of just the gravity of the situation, would have been able to afford to produce the vaccine unless there have been government guarantees to buy it because the profit margin on this is going to be much more narrow than it's going to be what, you know, they tend to charge for other types of diseases. And there had to be global cooperation for in order to produce the billions of, of, of vaccines that are going to be necessary to treat the entire world. And so, Here is a place where government actually does work and where government needs to be involved in the process, not just for safety regulations. And moreover, having had to deal with, you know, trying to set up appointments or monitor whether or not people are getting appointments for myself and my parents in three different states. um, Yeah, um, so far, uh, I don't get my vaccine uh, yet, but but so far, the, the place where it seems like it's done best was when my mom went to a a, a federally uh, operated facility um, where it was efficient, where we finally were able to get an appointment. Um, You know, my dad eventually got one this weekend at a county facility um, in his state. um, And I'm just disgusted and frustrated with sort of how fast, like how slowly that process was for him um, and how haphazard it was. And so it seems like the bigger scale has been the place where it's been, you know, more efficient, you know, mine will be facilitated through my job in part. Right. Because it's organized to do that and it's specialized to be able to provide that. And also because we were a testing site from one of the vaccines, I'm sure that that certainly helped. I don't know that for sure. But, yeah, scale seems to matter. um, And the places where it seems to be most efficient to get it are the ones that are, are federally operated from. Just my vantage point of having to deal with my own family trying to get this.
1: Uh, I'd I'd like to move on, but before I want to circle back, though, tomorrow to, Mar, to uh, a point that Andra made <clears throat> about distribution of the vaccine to communities of, of color. Uh, one of the things that's particularly important about the Mercedes-Benz site, the 6,000-shot-a-day site, is it's right on, Marta. Um, it can, you can get there through public transportation. I've said on the show a couple times how uh, you know, I thought DeKalb County was a breakthrough county in, in distributing the vaccine by moving a location from a brand smart parking lot at the perimeter that was only accessible by cars to the, I think, Doraville Marta station. And now Mercedes-Benz Stadium becomes an important place uh, for people to get access to.
2: Yeah, exactly, and it's it's centrally located. It's not somewhere in the burbs, you know. It's it's in Vine City. It's it's closer to you know communities that have been historically underserved, and obviously, it can handle a huge amount of capacity. So, good news all around, and hopefully, it'll be a really smooth process for them.
1: Uh, I I do. Um, Amelia Brock just sent me a note. She's been looking, monitoring, as she often does, our comments on Facebook and Twitter. And apparently there are some people who are listening to shows say that southeast Georgia has some Johnson & Johnson. There's some in Waynesboro, Veterans Administration in Decab was administering Johnson & Johnson, which is it's, it's interesting to hear because the news reporting I've been hearing tomorrow was that Johnson & Johnson hadn't appeared in the state yet. So we'll see and, and have to follow up on that.
2: It might just be the latest weekly shipment, so perhaps they, they managed to get one a week or two ago, and that, it's just that the upcoming ones. Yeah. could yeah. <laughs> be
1: Well, we always appreciate hearing from listeners about that sort of issue. Mary Margaret, I I really want to turn to talk a little bit about the the spa, the massage parlor shootings, especially in the context of um, what happened in Boulder, Colorado last night. Um, Mary Margaret, how did we, we, you know, I asked... at at the very start of the show, in the headlines to the radio version of the show, whether or not these shootings might have some impact on legislators who have long been resistant to anything uh, that would look like any kind of gun safety measure that might restrict access to guns in some way. And Mary Margaret, in fact, the opposite right now is true. The Senate is now considering a bill, it's House Bill 218, that in fact, um, number one, recognize it, w- would uh, say that Georgia must recognize concealed weapon permits from other states if you bring a gun into Georgia. It would require governments to sell seized weapons to the public. And in the case of another state emergency, like we're living under right now, uh, gun rights would be maintained. No governor who declared a state of emergency would be able to uh, in any way uh, constrain gun rights. So it, what's it, what, what is the mood in the Capitol when, these, when this latest incident occurs?
0: The purpose of 218 is for Georgia to accept the lowest standards possible in any of the 50 <laughs> states for uh, carrying permit and other gun quote-unquote rights. The frustration and uh, depression I have at the politicalization of gun safety issues is significant. And we, week after week, are seeing these horrific instances, seems to be uh, predominantly young white men who have significant issues in their life. Um, In the early part of my career, we talked about the long career, gun safety was genuinely a bipartisan discussion. It was a fair and open discussion where Georgia always leaned towards more gun rights rather than gun safety. But I remember when I was in the Senate and chair of the Judiciary Committee, we had legitimate debates on gun safety proposals, and it was bipartisan. Johnny Isaacson and Mike Egan, were part of those discussions to try to have a sensible discussion where there were genuinely moderate bipartisan voices at the table. There is nothing bipartisan about gun safety issues today. The bills that come forward are only on the side of more guns, more places everywhere, which is directly contradictory, as we know, to what people actually want. One of our new congressmen from North Georgia, not Marjorie Taylor Greene, owns a gun store. And he is the one, Congressman Clyde, who uh, objected to the metal detectors. I mean, the um, the politicalization of a far right position, my gun, anywhere, anytime, is totally contrary to safety issues and totally contrary to the mood of Georgia voters. The question I've got that I cannot answer so far is when are people going to take responsibility as voters and respond to this politicization in a positive way where they really value gun safety um, above the other competing issues that are coming forward. It's very, Ryan, very depressing.
1: I, I apologize I didn't mean to cut you off Ryan um, the, the news about the alleged perpetrator in the uh, in the spa uh, shootings uh, is that he was able to obtain his nine millimeter handgun within hours of the time that he f- shot the first person uh, up there uh, in uh, North Georgia and Cherokee County um, and 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 the question becomes should we, in fact, insist on a waiting period, um, a cooling off period, before a gun can be put in the hands of someone like that?
3: Well, I, I'm more of a shall not be infringed type of a person, uh, full full on Second Amendment. Um, and I also think that it's very reactionary to go in for gun control laws. Um, that won't necessarily fix the issue. We don't know um, if he would have you know, waited a certain amount of time and, and bought that gun anyway and done what he was going to do. Um, but I I think we do a disservice when we don't talk about the, um, you know, I think we should trust people when they tell us who they are. And when that perpetrator came out and said that his religious background, um, told him that he basically needed to go commit violence against, uh, sex workers, I'm not sure if they were sex workers or not, um, but that is what he thought, um, we need to look at what we're doing in our society to stigmatize, um, sex work, um, sex work should be legal and, uh, we need to take a look at, you know, what we're doing and what we're doing culturally instead of reactionary policies that reduce the rights of
1: peaceful people. Under the libertarian position is clear.
4: So um, as somebody who has spent a significant amount of time in a Southern Baptist church, uh, that is not the religious position of Southern Baptist. Um, we've talked about lots of things, but like that's not one of them. So, um, you know, if he said that he was struggling with temptation And he, you know, was basically, you know, it does say in the Bible, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. Um, Like, that's not how you pluck out one's eye, um, so to speak, uh, in a figurative sense of the word. Like, there are lots of people who struggle with sex addiction who don't go shooting up people. Um, And I think it should be said that, you know, at least as well, particularly for the Atlanta spas, these spas were not under investigation for doing illegal work. You went there to get a massage the same way that one would go to an Elizabeth Arden spa or to the spa at the Ritz-Carlton Carlson Hotel or something else along those lines. So the idea that he was punishing sex workers, one, not his job. Um, two, they're not sex workers. And three, to just go in and sort of use that as, as, as an excuse. Use for one's own challenges. Like if, if you are you know, are struggling uh, with, with a sex addiction, you go to a therapist, you don't go shooting up a file of people who didn't do anything to you, um, especially not in a day and time where Asian Americans are being targeted or excessive, um, excessively for violence, um, and, and certainly not in a context where Asian American women, particularly those who are working in massages, are presumed to be sex workers because of these longstanding stereotypes. So there's just some, there's just a lot that's really problematic in terms of the defense that he's trying to mount.
1: Tamar, meanwhile, uh, in terms of looking at gun law, uh, not only does the Georgia legislature have this bill, which would give give more rights to gun owners, um, but, but of course Congress, the the U.S. House, has uh, passed a, a a waiting period bill. It's sitting in the Senate. Uh, Chuck Schumer says they got to act on it, but there's no reason to think it's going to go anywhere over there, is there?
2: No, absolutely not. Congress hasn't acted. You know, They didn't act uh, after Newtown. They didn't act after Parkland, um, at least not the Senate anyway, where you need 60 votes to do anything. And there are even moderate members of the Democratic Party, like Joe Manchin, who are very firmly uh, gun rights people. So I am not expecting any uh, major action in the Senate.
1: Mary Margaret, I want to give you the last word before we get, get to a break.
2: To
0: show how far off we are from any kind of reasonable discussion on gun safety, the, everybody wants to talk about we need more mental health services. But there are two bills in the General Assembly right now that would correct significant problems about mental health uh, sufferers' access to guns. We obliterate a mental health records after five years in terms of gun uh, access. And secondly, what we call the red flag bill. I'm very interested in knowing uh, more about the parents of the young man, the parents' cooperation with police uh, that effectively saved lives, uh, saved that young man's life probably, uh, but others he was out to kill. I mean, we have an opportunity in bills that are before us to talk about when a family can raise the red flag and say, this child, this brother, this system is in danger of gun usage in an irresponsible way. We won't even talk about those bills.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get a break uh, out of the way. We've still got so much to talk about with this panel. We'll uh, get to our next agenda when we come back.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: Tamar Hallerman, Dr. Ander Gillespie, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Ryan Graham join us on Political Rewind uh, today. Um, Tamar, those of us who have covered the state capitol, and you of course came bound after covering uh, uh, the the Hill in Washington, um, have known for a long time that there has just been an enormous amount of misogyny uh, (laughs) in terms of how men deal with both women legislators, staff members, lobbyists, whatever. Um, and there's long been demeaning comments, uh, leering remarks, so-called uh, looks, so-called jokes about women. Uh, last week, Representative Casey Carpenter, a Republican from Dalton, made what he thought was a funny joke about Cardi B. Uh, and it really triggered for the first time uh, some strong pushback. First, a group of female legislators held a news conference and said, this has to stop. And then uh, this week, the House Ethics Chairman Randy Nix has said that um, these kinds of uh, episodes violate the sexual harassment rules passed by the legislature. Tomorrow, let me get you in there, and Mary Margaret, of course, we need to hear your thoughts about this.
2: Sure. you know this was a case of, of a comment made on the floor. Um, of the house so you know on the record in the public but and and obviously this you know they're they're making an example out of him kind of showing this will not be tolerated but it's going to take far more for there to be a cultural shift um... in terms of all the people in leadership positions when the cameras are turned off when you know behind closed doors um... and i think it's going to take a a lot more than that um... a lot more of, of a reckoning to kind of change a culture that has been known as a boys club for basically, you know, its entire existence. So it certainly is a step, but I think until there are more women kind of serving in leadership positions who can change the culture from the inside uh, for when the cameras aren't turned on, um, I think that's when a real difference will probably be made. Mary Margaret? The the Cardi B uh, ridiculously offensive comment
0: was the straw that broke the back of a lot of the freshman women that come out of professional workplaces. Uh, Republicans like to talk about we we run this place like a business. Well, the the culture is not a business like culture, uh, perpetuated by a, a, I don't know what percentage, but a, a minority percentage of um, <coughs> minority percentage of Republican leaders. Uh, it's a culture that is not business like when you're making jokes about male potency, and it's one joke after another um, that is just. So offensive to women who are coming newly into politics from professional backgrounds. Uh, It's not business like at Georgia Pacific or Coca-Cola or Home Depot in the midst of business peers to make jokes about women's bodies. That's not a business environment. I was very heartened by Randy Nix's comments yesterday. I was encouraged. Of course it's not going to change everybody's behavior. But the fact that the leadership of the Republican House took the well and talked with the right tone from the right position, looking at the rules in a very, very careful way to tell those guys to cut it out was very, very positive, in my view. It is an important step. Andra? Yeah,
4: I think that this highlights the importance of speaking out um, and calling things what they are. Um, so it, you know, would have been appropriate, you know, 20 years ago, would have been appropriate 40 years ago if we were talking about other, um, you know, rappers or models and using them as examples that are actually kind of non secondary to the discussion, um, you know, of 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 what was actually being debated in that bill. But and some people you think should know better and they should, but a lot of people don't know unless you tell tell them. And then there are those who won't know, but there are other people who will listen and take that to heart, and then you can start to create a new norm. Where people understand that this is not acceptable behavior and this is not how one comports themselves in this position.
1: You know, uh, Ryan, I think Andra makes a really important point, and although she didn't use this word, these words, uh, she essentially said, "What we need is a culture shift at the at the state capitol, as we've seen it in in many private businesses, as um as as you know, guys like me, white men, have uh, looked at um and, and reassessed." Uh, the way in which we viewed lots of different uh, people who are different uh, than we are. And the state capitol, this has been such an entrenched, chauvinistic kind of culture that the, the change is needed.
3: Yeah, um, you know, I think that people need to be considerate. And if you're holding yourself to, a, you know, a certain standard, specifically from the well, um, this isn't it. Um, but I also think that Uh, The comments made by the women on the show should kind of stand on their own. So I'm just going to let them stand.
1: Um, All right. I I just wanted to make sure we were able to talk about that for a few minutes tomorrow because, um, you know, I'm a father with a daughter, and I expect her to be treated with the same respect and dignity (laughs) that my son and uh, men in general are. So uh, I I just wanted to make sure we got a a few minutes to uh, talk about this important uh, matter on the show today. Uh, Tomorrow, let's turn to election bills, because we're still seeing them uh, come f- flying at us. Um, we now have got a passage of—and um, and Mary Margaret, I'm not—I I, I, I don't know how close we are to final passage, but, Ooh, but I think that night—what's huh, that, Mary Margaret?
0: I don't think we're close at all. I think that the House passage yesterday, the committee— Special uh, Committee on, quote, election integrity, close quote, uh, passed again a a 90-ish page Bill 202 with four amendments that were discussed last week. Um, The real product is not known yet. It will be uh, developed by a conference committee, in my opinion, from three Republicans appointed by the House and three Republicans appointed by the Senate. There will be no participation by Democrats. And the differences between the Senate bill and the House bill will be worked out in a conference committee. That's the final product, and it will probably not come until sine die next Wednesday, a week from tomorrow. Uh, I'm very, very worried about the final product. Uh, there's, a, there's enough bad things in 202 today, and how the worst product produced by the Senate is merged with the also bad product from the House, is very concerning. No bipartisan discussion all within the Republican leadership about how bad we can, how bad they can take election restrictions in a way that is going to reduce the opportunity for people to vote. No question about that. When you limit absentee ballot use and when you limit Um, drop box use. And when you set up a very complicated set of procedures about takeover of local uh, election offices, this is going to result, and it has to be said, intended to result in fewer people voting and fewer Democrats voting specifically.
1: Thank you for that. Let me say what I believe to be alive uh, still at this point, as you just said, Mary Margaret, Uh, limit absentee ballot drop boxes to locations inside early voting sites during regular hours and also with some sort of security or person monitoring The drop boxes require a driver's license number state ID or other documentation to request and cast an absentee ballot set a deadline for requesting an absentee ballot 11 days before Election Day disqualify provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct prohibit food from being distributed to voters waiting in line allow the state election board to replace underperforming county election boards, mandate runoffs four weeks after elections, and create partisan primaries for special elections. Tamar, still a lot on the on, on the table that people like Mary Margaret are very concerned about.
2: Sure, and, and it does seem like one of the more controversial things from one of the earlier drafts of this bill has been taking out. They, they are not eliminating no excuse um, Absentee voting, which I, I know uh, sparked a lot of outrage, especially you know, including from Republicans. Um, but but as my colleague Mark Nisi points out in his story, talking about this new bill that's emerged, taken together, a lot of these proposals will make it far more likely that a leading candidate from a general election would prevail in a runoff. So um, you know it, it was would have been very possible that that had this bill you know been a law. Uh, last fall, David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler very well could could still be in the U.S. Senate. Um, so, obviously, we we don't know that for sure. Uh, but huge changes to the way that Georgia administers its elections.
1: Ryan,
3: yeah. What stands out to me, um, and a lot of people m- maybe don't know this, but we're we're considered a political body in the state of Georgia, not a third party. So when I see things like special primaries being added, um, I start getting pretty worried because with um, special elections, we actually have ballot access. We don't we're not required to petition today. But if they add the special uh, the special primary, I'm not sure what that actually ends up looking like. I I didn't get the bill till yesterday, very late, uh, because obviously it wasn't public either. Um, but, you know, so we're looking at how that might impact us. I think that libertarians are safe, but if you start looking at others like Greens and Independence, Constitution Party, things like that, they may still have to petition, which is uh, they require 180 days to petition. So we might be extending the, uh, you know, the special primary, the special elections by six months, uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, the other thing I want to talk about in this bill that's really good uh, that isn't getting enough press time is instant runoff voting is getting added. Um, for overseas and military voters, um, and that's to shorten the amount of time between the runoff and the general. Um, It's a really good addition. We're very supportive of it. One of the things that it does for us is it eliminates the spoiler effect, the so-called spoiler effect, and allows third-party voters to vote their conscience first and not be scared of wasting their vote.
2: One other impact of this bill should it become a law that's interesting. You know, it shortens the runoff period, which I'm sure, you know, I was so fatigued by January and I'm sure everyone (laughs) would agree with me on that. At the same time though, the voter registration deadline to vote in a runoff would be actually the day before a general election, which um, I think Democrats would be very worried about because they were able to register um, tens of thousands more voters after uh, after November third, which which ha- was proven to have helped Warnock and Ossoff in uh, in January, so especially younger voters. So I, I bet that's going to be a, a lightning rod um, for debate in the next couple weeks or next couple days. Anyway, you don't have much time. Uh, yeah, I mean. I- think that in
4: some ways people are still trying to relitigate the last election, and that's always a very risky proposition. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we could always go rehash 2020, but like the next election, uh, you know, sort of especially federal, is is next year. Um, And we should be thinking about that going forward um, as opposed to completely trying to relitigate the past, right, because you're just exposing motivations, many of which are actually not particularly uh, good. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I do find interesting is that I very much value Ryan's sort of perception about how this affects third parties. Um, But thinking about ranked choice voting in general, um, you know, runoffs are an expensive proposition. They are very labor intensive. If we just adopted ranked choice voting just from the get go for everybody, it would make things a lot, a lot easier. Um, And so, you know, there is a certain up uh, certain, you know, startup cost to, you know, teaching people how it works. Um, but I think once we adopted it, it would actually, you know, end up being particularly efficient. And so if what people care about is efficiency, and not trying to game it for their party, right, then, you know, we would see the chaff of really bad policies going away, and we should focus on things that might actually, you know, make this a, a much smoother process.
1: So, Mary Margaret, uh, we, we are used to having, like, in the past, three-week periods between uh, uh, Election Day and a runoff election. It was changed by the feds when they said it doesn't give the no- amount of time needed for those overseas, uh, vo- uh, votes to co- overseas votes to come in. But here's the question. If you have an instant runoff for military and overseas voters so that I'm voting from France— and I not only pick the candidate I want in the general, I then say, and if there's a runoff, I want that candidate for the runoff. You are advantaging, I think, say, a David Perdue uh, in his battle to win that seat uh, against John Ossoff. It, it Doesn't that have an, an impact in that sense?
0: There's a half a dozen states that are experimenting, and I think that's the correct word, with uh, ranked voting for overseas military. And it, it makes sense that we go at that concept slowly with a little bit of data. Uh, how the uh, overseas and military people will vote when they're given two ballots, it's a little confusing to me um, sitting where I sit. But it, we will have an opportunity to look how that works. Ranked voting is uh, an appropriate discussion right now, uh, allowing this particular experiment to look at the other states and Georgia. Georgia is a very strong military state, uh, very competent people know how to vote if they choose to vote, more likely than somebody stuck in a rural area way, way, way away from a precinct. Um, There's a positive to this opportunity to look at this closely, uh, but... The relitigation, the response to losing Georgia <laughs> and losing the presidency is what's driving every part of this. So it always makes me very concerned. What is the final product of 202 really going to include that I haven't seen yet? That's my biggest worry. What are they holding back that they're going to put in a conference committee vote that i'm not going to know enough about that's what scares me most this week they're on a bad direction but what worse thing do they have up their sleeve that i don't know about yet
2: i was going to make a another comment about ranked choice voting but um yeah mary margaret's comment you know on capitol hill we got so used to it's called something being airdropped into a bill at the last minute and you get jammed because you know you only have 24 hours to look at a bill before it's being voted on and you're trying to figure out what changes were made um, When it comes to ranked choice choice, I'm very intrigued I wonder if this is the mm-hmm. beginning of the end of Georgia's runoff system. It was so expensive. It was so long It was so taxing um, And I wonder Maine has, has been doing it and it seems like it's been going very smoothly And so I wonder if, if Georgia is willing to ditch its system that's been around for a hundred years um, I, I sure was after uh, just such an exhausting season. So That's just me.
1: (laughs) I got to get to a final break. I'm way late for it. When we come back, Andre Gillespie, you do get the first word. uh, You're listening to Political Rewind. Very quick program note before we continue with our conversation. We are talking about guns and gun laws a little earlier on Thursday, day after tomorrow. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who was fired very, very in a very uh, major way and made national headlines from his job at CDC when he insisted on continuing gun research as an important part of his work at injury prevention and control at CDC. He'll be on. He's continued uh, looking at that issue. And he'll be joined by the former Chief Justice of the Arkansas State Supreme Court, Betty Dickey, who has picked up the work that her late husband, Jay Dickey, who was once a strong gun advocate and became anti-gun, uh, took up during his career. That's going to be on Thursday's show. But this election, the election bills are important. So with the remaining time, Andre, I want to give you a chance to weigh in.
4: Oh, all I wanted to say is that the beauty of ranked choice voting is that it's one ballot, right? You pick your choices, right? If your person doesn't make it, then they just go down and then pick sort of the next viable candidate. So it's way more efficient.
1: Yeah, I I'm fascinated to think about you were all opening my eyes to the notion that maybe we are headed toward ranked choice voting in this state, Ryan.
3: Yeah, I I just wanted to add one other benefit um that you know we talk a lot about how partisanship has kind of taken over the conversation and basically if the you know if the opposing team is for it, I'm against it, I don't really care what it is. Um, and one of the things that ranked choice voting is proven to get rid of or at least diminish is that because um, when you're campaigning, you can't just hate the other side. You're competing constantly for a vote. Um, even if I'm not your first vote, uh, I, I w- really want to be your second choice. And so there's there's this incentive to not not, you know, debase the, <laughs> the uh, opposing person's base. Um, and so, it, you know, you get all these really great outcomes like that.
1: Um, All right. Um, We've only got a couple minutes left. I want to pick up another quick issue here and just take a a couple minutes on it. Mary Margaret, you're the lawyer on the panel today. Um, So Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has now signed into law a bill that virtually outlaws abortion in the same way that Georgia's Uh, statute now does. And Hutchinson acknowledged when he signed the bill that it was unconstitutional. He recognized it violates Roe v. Wade, which is the exact reason the bill was uh, crafted with the language it was, so it it would go to the United States Supreme Court as a challenge to Roe. What that reminded me of is I'm not quite sure what's going on with George's essential abortion ban in terms of the courts. Help us understand where we're heading with this.
0: House Bill 481 was competing with other states to be the case to give the best opportunity to the United States Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And Arkansas is now part of that competition. Uh, We knew when we voted, I voted against 481, the Republicans voted for it. We knew that uh, it was going to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. And we are in on that path right now. I think where the, the, all of the federal circuits are dealing with one way or another, um, it's coming. The United States Supreme Court is going to hear a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. And a, there is, a, what I read, uh, an internal conversation in the United States Supreme Court about how they restrict Roe v. Wade versus how they repeal it. It's all going in a direction that is going to be harmful to women's reproductive rights. We're turning those issues to the state, and uh, I'm very concerned about how that's going to end up.
4: Yeah, I um, taught this to my students a couple weeks ago. So we talk about the types of cases that make it to the Supreme Court. You have to have a judicial controversy, Um, and so uh, the more appellate circuits that – have dealt with these cases and that have decided them differently, the higher the probability that the Supreme court is going to have to come in and reconcile it and to provide some uniform judicial understanding about, you know, what the constitution speaks to for these particular issues. So I was not surprised at all when governor Hutchinson said that outright on Sunday, um, you know, that it's just, it's, you know, playbook strategy. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, very quickly though, <clears throat> excuse me, this could still be a year, two years away, Mary Margaret, correct? I would say more like two years rather than one year would be my educated guess. All right. Um, We are completely out of time, and I've still got a long list of things I would love to talk with this panel about, but just don't have the time to do it. Uh, uh, Professor Andra Gillespie, Ryan Graham, uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, stay strong for the final days of the (laughs) session. Tamar Hallerman, we're so glad to have you all with us for our conversation Today, uh, we'll continue talking about legislative matters, plus some of the issues we didn't get to today, uh, like Brad Raffensperger being challenged now by a pretty strong opponent in the Secretary of State's race in the primary contest. There, we'll be joined by uh, House Minority Leader James Beverly, Edward Lindsay, uh, CNHI State House Reporter Riley Bunch, and AJC Reporter Greg Bluestein for tomorrow's show. But that's it for us for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Amelia Brock, uh, Jesse Neiswanger, and Sam bermas for your work on the show today. Till tomorrow, stay healthy, take care, wear a mask, and now you really can start looking for that vaccination if you haven't had it yet. Bye-bye, everybody.